What I want, peeps, what I want. We're reading The Road Less Travelled, a new psychology of love, traditional values and spiritual growth. And we're still on the love section, part two. Um, I think this is this is section two, part seven, because it's such a long section. So today's title is called Love is Disciplined. So I have indicated that the energy for the work of self-discipline derives from love, which is a form of will. It follows then not only that self-discipline is usually love, translated into action but also that any genuine lover behaves with self-discipline and any genuinely loving relationship is a disciplined relationship if i truly love another i will obviously order my behavior in such a way as to contribute to the utmost to his or her spiritual growth a young intelligent artistic and bohemian couple with whom i once attempted to work had a four-year marriage marked by almost daily screaming, dish-throwing, and face-clawing quarrels, along with weekly casual infidelity and monthly separations. Shortly after we began our work, they each correctly perceived that therapy would lead them towards increasing self-discipline and consequently to a less disorderly relationship. But you want to take the passion out of our relationship, they said. Your notion of love and marriage leaves no room for passion. Almost immediately thereafter, they quit therapy and it has been reported to me that three years later, after several bouts with other therapists, their daily screaming matches and the chaotic pattern of their marriage continue unchanged as well as the unproductability of their individual lives. There is no doubt that their union is, in a certain case, a highly colourful one. But it is like the primary colours in the paintings of children splashed on the paper with abandon. Occasionally not without charm, but generally demonstrating the sameness that characteristics the art of young children. In the muted, controlled hues of Rembrandt, one can find the colour, yet indefinitely more richness, uniqueness and meaning. Passion is feeling of great depth. The fact that a feeling is uncontrolled is no indication whatsoever that it is any deep, deeper than a feeling that is disciplined. To the contrary, psychiatrists know well the truth of the old proverbs. Shadow brooks are noisy and still waters run deep. We must not assume that someone whose feelings are not moderated and controlled is not a passionate person. While one should not be a slave to one's feelings, self-discipline does not mean the smashing of one's feelings into, an, into non-existence. I frequently told my patients that their feelings are their slaves and that the act of self-discipline is like the act of slave owning. First of all, one's feelings are the source of one's energy. They provide the horsepower or slave power that makes it possible for us to accomplish the task of living. Since they work for us, we should treat them with respect. There are two common mistakes that slave owners can make, which represent opposites in extreme forms of executive leadership. One type of slave owner does not discipline his slaves, gives them no structure, sets them no limits, provides them with no direction and does not make it clear who is the boss. What happens, of course, is that in due time, his slaves stop working and begin moving into the mansion, raiding the liquor cabinet and 
breaking the furniture and soon the slave owners find that he is the slaves of his slaves that he is the slave of his slaves living in the same part kind of chaos as the aforementioned characters disordered bohemian couple yet the opposite style of leadership which the guilt-ridden neurotic so often exerts over his feelings is equally self-destructive in this style the slave owner is so obsessed with the fear that his slave feelings might get out of control and so determined that they should cause him no trouble that he routinely beats them into submission and punishes them severely at the first sign of any potency the result of this style is that in relatively short order the slaves become less and less productive as that as their will is sapped by the harsh treatment they receive or else their will turns more and more towards covert rebellion if the process is carried out long enough one might one night the owner's prediction finally comes true and the slaves rise up and burn down the mansion frequently with the owner inside such is the genesis of certain psychosis and overwhelming neurosis the proper management of one's feelings clearly lies along a complex and therefore not simple or easy balanced middle path requiring constant judgment and continuing adjustment here the owner treats his feelings slaves with respect nurturing them with good food shelter and medical care listening and responding to their voices encouraging them inquiring as to their health yet also organizing them limiting them decide deciding clearly between them redirecting them and teaching them all the while leaving no doubt as to who is the boss this is the path of healthy self-discipline among the feelings that must be so disciplined is the feeling of love as i have no indicated this is not in itself genuine love but the feeling associated with catesis it is the very much respected and nurtured for the creative energy it brings but it is it, if it is allowed to run rampant the result will not be genuine love but confusion and unproductibility unproductivity sorry because genuine love involves an extension of oneself vast amounts of energy are required and like it or not the store of our energy is limited as the hours of our day we simply cannot love everyone true we may have a feeling of love for mankind and this feeling may also be useful in providing us with enough energy to manifest genuine love for the few specific individuals but genuine love for a relatively few individuals is all that is within our power to attempt to exceed the limits of our energy is to offer more than we can deliver and there is a point of no return beyond which an attempt to love all commas becomes fraudulent and harmful to the very one we desire to assist consequently if we are fortunate enough to be in a position in which many people ask for our attention we must choose those among them whom we are we are actually to love this choice is not easy it may be excruciatingly painful as the assumption of godlike power so often is but it must be made many factors need to be considered primarily the capacity of a prospective recipient of our love to respond to that love which spiritual which spiritual growth people differ in this capacity a factor which more examination will later be given it is however 
unquestionable that there are many whose spirit are so locked in behind impenetrable armor that even the greatest effort to nurture the growth of those spirits are doomed to almost certain failure to attempt to love someone who cannot benefit from your love with spiritual growth is a waste of your energy to cast your seed upon arid ground i know one person in particular who this is such a waste of energy <laughs> anyway i shouldn't get no, i shouldn't get personal with these things but that makes so much sense anyway Genuine love is precious and those who are capable of genuine love know that their loving must be focused as productively as possible through self-discipline. I had to learn that the hard way. You can't give some people unconditional love. They don't know what to do with it. They don't understand what unconditional love is. So <laughs> I'm going to stop it now and stop making these comments. Anyway, the converse the converse of the problem of loving too many people also needs to be examined. It is possible for some people, at least, to love more than one person at the same time, to simultaneously maintain a number of generally loving relationships. This itself is a problem for several reasons. One reason is that the American or Western myth of romantic love that suggests that certain people are meant for each other thus, by extra politation they are not meant for anyone else the myth therefore prescribes exclusively for loving relationships most particularly sexual exclusivity on balance the myth is probably helping helpful in contributing to the stability and productivity of human relationships since the vast majority of humans beings are challenged to the limit of their capacity to expend themselves to develop generally loving relationships with their spouses and children alone. Indeed, if one can say that one has built genuinely loving relationships with a spouse and children, then one has already succeeded in accomplishing more than most people accomplish in a lifetime. There is frequently something pathetic about the individual who has failed to build his family into a loving unit, yet restlessly searches for loving relationships outside the family. The first obligation of a genuinely loving person will always be to his or her marital and parental relationships. Nevertheless, there are some whose capacity to love is great enough for them to build loving relationships successfully within the family and still have energy left for additional relationships. For those, the myth of exclusivity is not only patently false, but also represents an unnecessary limitation upon their capacity to give of themselves to other, out, others outside their family. It is possible for this limitation to be overcome, but great self-discipline is required in the extension of oneself in order to avoid spreading oneself too thin. It was to this extraordinarily complex issue, here touched only in passing, that Joseph Fletcher, the Espocopalian theologian and author of the new morality, was addressing himself when he reported, said to a friend of mine, free love is an ideal. Unfortunately, it is an ideal of which very few of us are capable what he meant was that very few of us has a capacity for self-discipline great enough to maintain constructive relationships that are generally loving both in and outside of the family freedom and discipline are indeed handmaidens 
Without the discipline of genuine love, freedom is invariably non-loving and destructive. By this time, some readers may feel saturated by the concept of discipline and conclude that I am advocating a style of life of Calvinistic dreariness. Constant self-discipline, constant self-examination, duty, responsibility, neo-puterism, they might call it. Call it what you will, genuine love with all the discipline that it requires is the only path in this life's substantial joy. Let me read that again. With all the discipline that is required is the only path in this life to substantial joy. Take another path and you might find rare moments of ecstatic joy, but they will be fleeting and progressively more elusive. When I genuinely love, I am extending myself. And when I'm extending myself, I am growing the more I love. The longer I love, the larger I become. Genuine love is self-replenishing. The more I nurture the spiritual growth of others, the more my own spiritual growth is nurtured. I am a totally selfless human being. I never do something for somebody else, but that I do it for myself. And as I grow through love, so grow my joy, even more pleasant, even more present, even more constant. Near Puritan, perhaps I am. I am also a joy freak, as John Denver sings. Love is every, everywhere. I see it. You are all that you can be. Go on and be it. Life is perfect, I believe it. Come and play the game with me. And there's a footnote here. It says, Love is Everywhere by John Dever, Joe Henry, Steve Wershberg, and John Martin Summers. Copyright 1975. Okay. So we're moving on to love is separate, separateness. Separateness. Okay, love is separateness. Although the act of nurturing another's spiritual growth has the effect of nurturing one's own, a major characteristic of genuine love is that the distinction between oneself and the other is always maintained and preserved. You have to love yourself first before you can love somebody else. I say it and I say it again. I'm going to shut up now. Okay. The genuine lover always perceives the beloved as someone who has a totally separate identity. Moreover, the genuine lover always respects and even encourages their separateness and the un unique individuality of the beloved failure to perceive and respect this separateness is extremely common however and the cause of much mental illness and unnecessary suffering yeah people are in individual and unique you know so if you don't let that person be who they are then that is not love really is it okay in its most extreme form the failure to perceive the separateness of the other is called narcissism oh here we go one of my favourite subjects. Frankly, narcissistic individuals are actually unable to perceive their children, spouses or friends as being separate from themselves on an emotional level. The first time I began to understand what narcissism is all about was during an interview with the parents of a schizophrenic patient whom I will call Susan X. Susan, at the time, was 31. Since the age of 18, she had made a number of serious suicide attempts and had had to be hospitalised, also continuously in a variety of hospitals and, and sanatoria for the previous 13 years. However, largely because of 
superior psychiatric care that she had received from other psychiatrists during those years, she was finally beginning to improve. For some months during our work together, she had demonstrated an increasingly capacity to trust, capacity to trust trustworthy people, to distinguish between trustworthy and untrustworthy people, to accept the fact that she had a schizophrenic illness and would need to exert a great deal of self-discipline for the rest of her life to deal with this illness, to respect herself and to do what was necessary to care for herself without having to rely on others to continue nurture her. Because of this great progress, I felt the moment was so was soon at hand when Susan would be able to leave the hospital and for the first time in her life, leading and maintain a successful independent existence. It was at this point that I met with her parents, an attractive, wealthy couple in their mid-fifties. I was very happy to describe to them Susan's enormous progress and explain in detail the reason for my optimism. But much to my surprise, soon after I began to do this, Susan's mother started to cry silently and continued to cry as I went on with my hopeful message. At first, I thought perhaps her tears were tears of joy, but it was clear from her expression that she was indeed feeling sad. Finally, I said, I'm puzzled, Mrs. X. I've been telling you things today that are most hopeful, yet you seem to be really sad. Of course I'm sad, she replied. I just can't help crying when I think of all poor Susan had to suffer. I then went into a lengthy explanation to the effect that while it was quite true Susan had suffered a great deal in her course of her illness, she has also clearly learned a great deal from this suffering, had come out on top of it, and in my estimation was unlikely to suffer any more in the future than any other adult. Indeed, she might suffer considerably less than any of us because of the wisdom she has gained from her battle with schizophrenia. Mrs X continued to weep silently. Frankly, I'm still puzzled, Mrs X, I said. Over the past 13 years, you must have participated in at least a dozen conferences like this with Susan's psychiatrist, and from what I know, none of them were as optimistic as this one. Don't you feel gladness as well as sadness? I can only think of how difficult life is for Susan, Mrs X replied tearfully. Look, Mrs X, I said, is there anything I can say to you about Susan that would make you feel encouraged and happy about her? Poor Susan's life is so full of pain, Mrs. X whimpered. Suddenly I realised that Mrs. X was not crying for Susan, but for herself. She was crying for her own pain and suffering, yet the conference was about Susan, not about her. And she was doing her crying in Susan's name. How could she do this, I wondered. And then I realised that Mrs. X was actually not able to distinguish between Susan and herself. What she felt, Susan must feel. She was using Susan as a vehicle to express her own needs. She was not doing this consciously or maliciously on an emotional level. She could not, in fact, perceive Susan as having an identity separate from her own. Susan was she. In her mind, Susan as a unique, dif different individual was a unique, different path in life simply did not exist, nor probably did anything, anything anyone else. Intellectually, Mrs. X could recognise only people as being different from herself, but on a more basic level, other people did not exist for her. In the depths of her mind, the entirety of the world was she, Mrs. X, she alone. Wow. In subsequent experiences, I frequently found the mothers of schizophrenic children to be extraordinary narcissistic indi individuals like Mrs. X. 
This is not to say that such mothers are always narcissistic or that narcissistic mothers can't raise narcissistic children. Schizophrenia is an extremely complex disorder with obvious genetics as well as environmental determinants. But one can imagine the depth of confusion in Susan's childhood produced by her mother's narcissism. And one can objectively see this confusion when actually observing narcissistic mother interact with their children. On an afternoon with Mrs. X was feeling sorry for herself, Susan might have come home from school bringing some of her paintings and the teacher had, gra had graded A. If she told her mother probably how she was progressing in art, Mrs. X might well respond, Susan, go take a nap. You shouldn't get yourself so exhausted over your work in school. The school system is no good anymore. They don't care for children anymore. On the other hand, on an afternoon with Mrs. X was in a very cheerful mood, Susan might have come home in tears over the fact that she had been bullied by several boys on the school bus and Mrs. X would say, isn't it fortunate that Mr. Jones is such a good bus driver? He's so nice and patient with all you children and your roughhousing. I think you should be sure to give him a nice little present at Christmas time. Since they do not perceive others as, as others but only as extensions of themselves, narcissistic individuals lack the capacity for empathy, which is the capacity to feel what another is feeling. Lacking empathy, narcissistic parents usually respond inappropriately to their children on an emotional level and fail to offer any recognition or verification of their children's feelings. It is no wonder then that such children grow up with grave difficulties in recognising, accepting and hence managing their own feelings. I know somebody so, so, oh my goodness. This so rings true. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> While not usually as narcissistic as Mrs. X, the vast majority of parents fail in some degree to adequately recognise or fully appreciate the unique identity individuality or otherness of their children common examples abound parents will say of a child here's a chip off the old block or to a child you're just like your uncle jim as if these children are some genetic copy of themselves or the family when the fact of genetic combinations are such that all children genetically are extremely different from e either of their parents and all of their forebears Athletic fathers push their scholarly sons into football and scholarly fathers push their athletic sons into books, causing the sons much unnecessary guilt and turmoil. A general's wife complains about her 17-year-old daughter. When she's home, Silly sits, Sally sits in her room all the time writing sad poetry. It's morbid, doctor, and she absolutely refuses to have a coming-out party. I'm afraid that she's seriously ill. After interviewing Sally, a charming, vivacious young woman who is on the honour roll at school and has lots of friends, I told her parents that I think Sally is perfectly healthy and suggest that perhaps they should lessen their pressure on her to be a carbon copy of themselves. They, le they leave to look for another psychiatrist, one who might be willing to pronounce Sally's differences, dif differences deviances. Wow. Adolescent frequencies, adolescents frequently complain that they are disciplined not out of genuine concern but because of parental fear that they will give their parents a bad image. 
My parents are continuing after me to cut my hair, as adolescent boys used to say a few years ago. They can't explain why long hair is bad for me. They just don't want other people to see they've got long-haired kids. They don't really give a shit about me. All they are really caring about is their own image. Such adolescent resentment is usually justified. Their parents generally do in fact fail to appreciate the unique individuality of their children and instead regard their children extensions of themselves in much the same way as their fine clothes and their neat manicured lawns and their polished cars are extension of themselves which represent their status in the world it is to those mind mind milder but nevertheless destructive common forms of parental narcissism that khalil gibran addresses himself in what are perhaps the finest words ever written about child raising your children are not your children they are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself they come through you but not from you and though they are with you they belong not to you you may give them your love but not your thoughts for they have their own thoughts you may house their bodies but not their souls for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow which you cannot visit not even in your dreams you may strive to be like them but seek not to make them like you for life goes not backwards nor tarries with yesterday you are the bow from which your children are living arrows are sent forth the archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite and he bends you with his might that his arrow may go swift and far let your bending in the archer's hands be for gladness but even as he loves the arrow that flies so he loves also the bow that is stable and there's a footnote here it says the prophet new york alfred a conoth 1951 okay so the difficulty that humans so generally see to have in fully appreciating the separateness of those who they are close to interferes not only with their parenting but with all their intimate relationships including marriage not too long ago in a couples group i heard one of the members state that the purpose and function of his wife was to keep their house neat and and him well fed oh i know someone like this <laughs> i was aghast at what seems to me his painfully blatant male chauvinism i thought i might demonstrate this to him by asking the other members of the group to state how they perceive the purpose and function of their spouses to my horror the six other male and females alike gave very similar answers all of them defined the purpose and function of their husbands or wives in reference to themselves all that all of them failed to perceive that their own mates might have an existence basically separate from their own or any kind of destiny apart from their marriage good grief i explained it's no wonder that you are all having difficulties in your marriage and you'll continue to have difficulties until you can come to recognize that each of you has your own separate destiny and fulfill to fulfill the group felt not only chastised but profoundly confused by my pronouncement somewhat belligerently they asked me to define the purpose and function of my wife the purpose and function of lily i responded is to grow to be the most of what she is capable not for my benefit but for her own and to to the glory of god the concept remained alien to them for some time however damn it 
if you are stifling somebody and imposing your will on them, that's karma. Of course it's karma. I'm sorry. I have to make this comments. This is getting deep. Anyway, the problem of separateness in close relationships have bedeviled mankind through the ages. However, it has received more attention from a political standpoint than from a material one. Material one. Pure communism, for instance, expresses a philosophy not unlike that of the aforementioned couples, namely that the purpose and function of the individual is to serve the relationship, the group, the collective, the society. Only the destiny of the state is considered. The destiny of the individual is believed to be of no consequence. Pure capitalism, on the other hand, exposes the destiny, exposes the destiny of the individual even when it is at the expense of the relationship the group the collective the society widows and orphans may starve but this should not prevent the individual entrepreneur from enjoying all the fruits of his or her individual initiative it should be obvious to any discerning mind that neither of these pure solutions to the problem of separateness within relationships will be successful the individual's health depends upon the health of the society. The health of the society depends upon the health of its individuals. When dealing with couples, my wife and I draw the analogy between marriage and a base camp for mountain climbing. If one wants to climb mountains, one must have a good base camp, a place where they are sheltered and where there's shelters and provision where one may receive nurture and rest before one ventures forth again to seek another summit. Successful mountain climbers know that they must spend at least at least as much time, if not more, in tending to their base camp as they actually do in climbing mountains, for their survival is dependable than them seeing it that their base camp is sturdily constructed and well stocked. Are you getting that analogy, people? A common and traditionally masculine material problem is created by the husband who, once he is married, denotes, devotes all his energies to climbing mountains and not attending to his marriage or base camp, expecting it to be there in perfect order whenever he chooses to return to it for rest and recreation without him assuming any responsibility for its maintenance. Sooner or later, the capitalist approach to the problem fails and he returns to find his unattended base camp a shambles his neglected wife, having been hospitalised for nervous breakdown, having run off within, with another man, or in some other way having renounced her job as camp caretaker. An equally common and traditionally female maternal problem, marital problem, is created by the wife who, once she is married, feels that the goal of her life has been achieved. To her, the base camp is the peak. She cannot understand or empathise with her husband's needs for achievement and experience beyond the marriage and reacts to them with jealousy and never-ending demands that he devote increasingly more energy to the home. Like other communist revolu res resolutions of the problem, this one creates a relationship that is suffocating and stuffifying, from which the husband, feeling trapped and limited, may li likely flee in a moment of midlife crisis. The woman's liberation movement has been helpful in pointing the way to what is obviously the only ideal resolution, resolution. Marriage as a truly cooperative institution requiring great mutual contributions and care, time and energy, but existing for the primary purpose of nurturing each other, 
each of the participants for individual journeys towards his or own individual piece of spiritual growth. Male and female both must tend the half and both must venture forth. So everybody has their own interests, but, you know, together you have a partnership and that's how it should be. But if someone's demanding that you be the housewife and tend to their needs, what happens when the housewife is working, but she still has to come and attend to those needs? This is just my opinion, but what happens? Can you not share what needs to happen at the base camp? This is what it's saying. You know, if, you're, if your wife comes in tired and you get in before her, why don't you start dinner and maybe she'll take over when you get there? You know, that kind of thing. But you get some really male chauvinistic pigs out there that think that the woman's place is in the home and even if they're working, their place is still in the home. And it's not fair because that's such, such a contradiction. Anyway, shout out, Val. <laughs> As an adolescent, I used to drill to the words of love and the early American poet Anne Bradstreet spoke to her husband. If ever two were one, then we... As I have grown, however, I have come to realise that it is the separateness of the partners that enriches the union. Great marriages cannot be constructed by individuals who are terrified by their basic aloneness, as so commonly in the case, and seek a merging in marriage. Genuine love not only respects the individuality of the other, but actually seeks to cultivate it, even at the risk of separation or loss. The ultimate goal of life remains the spiritual growth of the individual, the, solita the solitary journey to peaks that can be climbed only alone. Significant journeys cannot be accomplished without the nurture being provided by a successful marriage or a successful society. Marriage and society exist for the basic purpose of nurturing such individual journeys. But as in the case with all genuine love, sacrifices on behalf of the growth of the other results in equal or greater growth of the self. It is the return of the individual to the nurturing marriage or society from the peaks he or she has travelled alone, which serves to elaborate, elaborate, alleviate the marriage or the society to new heights. Elevate, sorry, which serves to elevate the marriage or that society to new heights. In this way, individual growth and societal growth are interdependent, but it is always and invariably lonely out on the growing edge. It is from the loneliness of his wisdom that once again the prophet of Kali Gibran speaks to us concerning marriage. But let there be spaces in your togetherness and let the winds of the heavens dance between you. Love one another, but make not a bond of love. Let it rather be a moving sea between the shores of your souls. Fill each other's cup, but drink not from one cup. Give one another of your bread, but eat not from the same loaf. And there's a footnote here, and it's what I read previously was to my dear and loving husband, 1678, contained in the literature of the United States, Walter Blair et al. Anyway. So, the poem continues. Sing and dance together and be joyous, but let each other of you be alone. Even as the strings of a lure are alone through, they shiver with the same music. Give your heart, but not into each other's keeping, for only the hand of life can contain your hearts and stand together, yet not too near together, 
for the pillars of the temple stand apart and the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow so here end of section seven and tomorrow we'll talk about love and psychotherapy okay until tomorrow that was deep